1: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, I'm talking to the novelist Zadie Smith about another writer, Charles Dickens, what Dickens has meant to her, why Dickens still matters, and what's missing from the Dickensian view of the world. Past, present, future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, where you can read essays on Dickens, on Zadie Smith, and on everything in between. To subscribe for a special rate and to get access to the LRB's peerless archive, just go to lrb.me ppf. That's lrb.me ppf. I recorded this conversation with Zadie Smith at the end of last week in London. Her new novel is called The Fraud, and it's not primarily about Charles Dickens, but Dickens is a character in it. He has more than a walk on part, and he hovers over the background of the story that she tells, even though some of the other characters are pretty mocking of Dickens and sometimes scathing about him. They can't get away from him, he is inescapable. This conversation is not just about Dickens. We're going to be talking about other writers too. We discuss George Orwell. We talk about Turgenev, and at the end, Tony Morrison. But Dickens, the inescapable, incomparable Charles Dickens, is where we start. Sadie, so you wrote in The New Yorker that you read too much Dickens as a child how come i mean what was it like what kept you coming back to him because i i know people are meant to read dickens as children but my feeling is that they don't but you did
0: i mean that might be one of the problems of my childhood i was always doing things that i was meant to do <laughs> uh out of a feeling of anxiety so i did read a lot of dickens and i and i did enjoy him like the the life of it and the voices in it meant something to me from the beginning this kind of mass often like working class variety of speech, I, I recognized it, I knew it, and I lived amongst it as well.
1: So it was the it was the panoply of characters, not, yeah. the, not the plots, which...
0: No, even then I knew the plots were cobbled together. <laughs> I mean, there are periods in the middle of a book where he'll be suddenly thinking about theatrical impresarios and how they've mistreated him. And that essay will just appear in like chapter 27. So they were always unwieldy. But something brings you back just the the human energy of it
1: and so when you read dickens now as an adult do you get that childlike sense of excitement from the energy or do you is it really hard to recapture as an adult what spoke to you as a child
0: i mean no i I always have respect the idea of trying to make a character live in a paragraph he is the king of it he is the king of it but the question is what kind of person is built up in a paragraph a kind of caricature a kind of comic monstrosity he's brilliant at all those things and I think when you in your life you r- recognize as you get older that some people do present as comic monstrosities it's not as if they don't exist but I guess in my own fiction I've been interested in doing more than a paragraph yeah
1: so I wanted to read you this yeah. paragraph of yours mm-hmm. from the chapter of the fraud which is called Dickens is dead and you're writing in the New Yorker about killing Dickens and this is Mrs. Touche your central character yeah. in the fraud Fair thinking about Dickens, someone she knew and came to suspect. And this is Mrs. Touche. She began thinking of that secondhand clothes shop on Monmouth Street, which the young Boz, by merely observing, had rendered so startlingly animate, filling all the vacant dresses and coats and shoes in the window with a cast of humans, each one convincing, conjured in a sentence, overbrimming with life, what looked like life. Mrs. Touche did not believe that souls were fully contained or described by coats and shoes. But she knew she lived in an age of things, no matter how out of step she felt in it. And whatever else he was, Charles had been the poet of things. He had made animate and human the cold traffic and bitter worship of things. The only way she could make sense of the general mourning was to note that with his death, an age of things now mourned itself." Hmm. So I think of him like this too. So he is the genius at taking the outside of a person and making you feel like you've seen this person all the way through. And the way he does that is makes them consistent all the way through. So in a sense, the inner and the outer match each other. So you get this sense of connection with characters who are just not one dimensional, but are just one thing. Why is it so gripping? Because it is. There's no question that the reason Dickens speaks to people across generations and cultures is that they feel that connection with one-dimensional characters. That's always been the mystery to me.
0: Well, I started thinking about him as almost the poet of liberalism. And that, like, I never have contempt for him, because in terms of legislative change, I can't think of another writer apart from perhaps Angela Davis I mean like writers on my side of the fence who've actually affected some change in a society at the legislative level but how did he do it it's through these portraits and they're essentially sentimental that's what they are and I don't I have no right to (laughs) judge him on that front but it does interest me that the sentimentality of his politics like the best example I can give is actually in the book when this kind of Jamaica question is roiling and there's a basically a Labour dispute revolution going on in Jamaica and London is split apart amongst you know outright racists like Carlisle and liberals on the other side trying to decide whether this revolt is a good thing.
1: And it's incredibly violent.
0: Yeah, it's, it's put down with unbelievable violence. So it is basically a Labour dispute that is put down, I mean, mass murder, like 400 people killed in Jamaica by British forces. And Dickens chooses Carlisle's side. And the reason is, I think, because he couldn't see it. He didn't, he'd never been there. He didn't see the barefoot children. And his politics is based on, I saw it, I felt it. You know, him walking through London at night, every night is part of that. It's gathering personal, emotional, visual evidence of suffering or oppression. And when he goes to America a few years later and does go to a plantation, he's immediately repelled, right? He's like, I don't want to read below the Mason-Dixon line, blah, 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 blah. So that interests me. Those are the kind of great things about Dickens and the limits of him. Like he was able to push forward these incredible actions if he had seen it and felt it. And I, that kind of politics, I think, scares me. But I also see its echo now. Like I remember during the immigrant crisis, that photo of the boy in the sand. and I, It really blew my mind that you need to see a picture of a dead child before you understand what's going on here so that to me is very Dickensian that kind of spectacle politics like here's the name here's the personality did you know this child had a family I, I don't know the moral vision of that is so limited
1: and does it extend up and down the social scale so it's suffering and the characters they all have that outward inward match right Rich and poor, right. and people reading Dickens sympathise. Part of his appeal is that you, your sympathies are meant to be yeah, broad, it's better and yet than they're lim- and yet they are limited.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? it's better than nothing, though. Like I, I'm trying to that line, Mrs. Touchet says, which I, I suppose is like the ultimate liberal line, but I don't think is without merit. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, without Dickens' sympathetic eye so many of those labour injustices in England would have continued a lot longer. Like, he put it in front of the eyes of the British public. And those lines that you never forget, like, from Christmas Carol, a drop in the comprehensive ocean of my business. I mean, these are poetic, sentimental, but serious ideas that he forced in front of people. So I admire him, and sometimes, you know, he also, I mean, maybe he's just a lesson in the, limited politics of novelists, which I think is something worth remembering. Like, if you're looking for novelists to, you know, guide you through a political situation, you should think again, because they work in this way, on sentiment.
1: The other thing that he does, and in a way he's notorious for, everyone who reads Dickens gets that sense that there are a lot of coincidences, that people end up knowing each other in ways that don't seem remotely plausible. And So you have this universal world, you have every strata of society, and yet it's a tiny world. I'm thinking of something like Bleak House, where what you end up with is a picture of an interconnected system, a social system, which both feels like it covers the whole piece and is incredibly narrow. And something about that is also politically motivating.
0: You know, until very recently, I would have agreed with you, (laughs) but the experience of researching this book... Gave me a different perspective is that London is unbelievably small and interconnected at this point. So this novel is based on two completely different stories. One is a Titchborne claimant, which is like a, a wild, almost Trumpian, or I don't O.J. Simpson is a comparison attempt to penetrate the courts with an outright lie, and the other is a story of William Ainsworth, a novelist in London and his literary circle. I've been thinking about these two stories for a long time. They are connected to a young poet who an irish poet who was at william's table you know every saturday for years who became the lawyer on the titchborne case and those kind of absurd coincidences kept on coming up you know as i was researching it like mrs touche a real person who i was interested in turns out to be the great-granddaughter by marriage of one of the most infamous slave traders of manchester history so we are talking about a small intertwined world in which all roads do lead to Jamaica and capital is very tied up in these various apparently different situations. So I began to see his coincidences as, you know, realism, which I didn't think of before.
1: But then when you read Dickens himself, you don't feel all roads lead to Jamaica. No. You feel this is a a microcosm of England. Yeah. And so it has that universal sense, but it's it's just one universe. Yes. And the That's world true. outside which you, bring, so this novel is about the world outside, and I want to talk about Australia too. So it's right. about Australia and it's about North America, the two worlds that exist outside Dickens's world. But Dickens himself somehow persuades you that you can understand how everything is connected, say right. in a book like Bleak House, without having to think about the world outside, the no, world outside absolutely.
0: England. I mean, but if you accuse him of that, which I do, it's shared it's an instinct shared by the whole of England. Yeah. Like the more I thought about it really after I wrote the book, thinking about the tichborne trial in which you have a previously enslaved black man from Jamaica, a wild Irish lawyer from Cork, and a working-class white English man on stage effectively in the middle of British power in the Queen's Court every day for almost three years. What you're getting is a dramatisation of all the things the English don't want to think about, Ireland, Jamaica, and the poor. It was a It was a proper intervention. And the fact that everybody was talking about it, having to hear about it, was forcing all of these questions into people's faces again. And I think Dickens really disliked chaos. I mean, that really is very deep in his instinct. He wanted to control things. And if he was changing things, he wanted to be in control of that change. Like I think it's in Claire Tomlin's book, she talks about his House for Fallen Women, which I think from the view of 2023, we can find pretty peculiar, right? Like he's... Sending letters every morning, trying to check what they're doing, what time they're getting dressed, have they said their prayers yet, what they're eating. I mean, it's beyond you know any kind of conservative fancy of the nanny state. It's really controlling. I think he thought about people that way, like characters who should be available for his manipulation at all times.
1: Yeah, in this book, you describe him as a thief of people's characters. Or, are they, sorry, you yeah. don't. Mrs. Touche does. Mrs. Touche
0: does. I actually think that critique, which is obviously very popular again, the idea that novelists are soul stealers, that the whole architecture of the argument is slightly wrong because I know when I'm writing... I mean, a good example is there's a scene of Mrs. Touche with Henry and Andrew, two black men walking down the street, and everybody's staring. And after I wrote the scene, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not a white woman walking with two black men in 1873. But I must subconsciously, some part of me remembers the feeling of being in my family, for instance, in 1978, and people staring a fair amount. So remembering that, I thought, it's like that. It's like acting. And of course, Dickens was a great actor. And my brother is an actor. And with my brother's going to play Oedipus, he doesn't need to know, you know, what it's like to have sex with your mother and kill your father. But he does need to feel fear, desire. It's like that. You're using your emotions. So it's self-vampiric, I think. So I know Mrs. Touche thinks Dickens is a vampire of people, but I think he was more a vampire of his own emotions. He'd had many of them. <laughs> He'd had this extreme childhood, and he just knows how to dole them out onto characters. He doles them out singly, I think. Terrified children, dominant men. He transports them out, but that's a different kind of accusation. You can still call it vampirism, but it's it's auto I don't know what the word for that is. It's auto-vampirism.
1: I think it's probably true that everyone who's found themselves written up in a novel and recognises their own character in a novel right. feels that they've been reduced. Yeah, that they've, horrifying. they've been to every, everyone. In the same way that if you, if you read a story in a newspaper, you read the newspaper every day and you believe what you read. I do anyway. Until it's about you. <laughs> Until it's about you and then you realise it's all bollocks, right? Yeah. And all of it is made up. Right. And you discover yourself in a novel and then you think... They've just turned me into a kind of completely one-dimensional person. But of course, part of the point is that is how most people see most people. I mean, it it is one of the themes of your book, Right. right? When you see through people it's incredibly hard to hold on to the hidden depths because we can only function in the world by treating each other in this way. So there's something about seeing it written down, which you feel is a theft, but it's not. There's a truth to it. There's
0: a truth to it. That's how we see people with this distance. But also there's a kind of ethical importance in it. Like I thought when I was writing Andrew Bogle, that Mrs. Touche is the vampire, right? She wants to know everything. She wants to know the interiors of people. She wants to know their souls. And I feel like with Bogle, who's been enslaved on a plantation, who is now trying to be an independent man, the last thing he wants is friendship with this liberal white woman. He doesn't want to be friends with her. He's not interested in telling her his most intimate life. And that's what shocks her. She can't imagine a political allegiance which isn't, you know, a soul sharing. But for Bogle, it's much more pragmatic. Like we are both perhaps under the same system of capital. We're both looking for our rights. You want your rights as a woman. I want my rights as a previously enslaved man. But we don't need to, you know, be friends. <laughs> That's not a necessary thing. So I think in Dickens novels, there is more this sense of some intimate, there's a lot of love plots, etc. That that has to happen for change or for solidarity. And I guess I don't feel that.
1: Can I read you one more paragraph? Yeah, right. So this is Mrs. Touchet again thinking about her relationship with Bogle and thinking about how people respond to a face. And part of the point about Bogle is that he is completely masked and that he doesn't seem to show you see him up on the platform of the case and he should be roiled with emotion and he's amazingly consistent. And somehow he doesn't So he doesn't compute. They, the crowd, heard only the quiet voice speaking lilting words in a certain arrangement and mistook all of this for a person kindly, simple, old, black Bogle. They could not know what he had seen, nor where he had been, but perhaps, reflected Mrs. Touche, this is always the case. We mistake each other, our whole social arrangement, a series of mistakes and compromises, shorthand for a mystery too large to be seen. If they knew what I knew, they would feel as I do. Yet, even once one had glimpsed behind the veil which separates people, as she had, How hard it proves to keep the lives of others in mind. Everything conspires against it. Life itself. That's the passage. So life itself, the real thing, is also the business of people not looking behind the veil. That's that's a truth, right?
0: That, for Mrs. Touche, is an existential problem. and She's a committed Catholic, so it's also a matter of religion. But if you're asking her author, (laughs) I, I, of course, hope for a world in which people can imagine the other lives of the people they come across. I think this all the time at the school gates. Like I, my kids are in school where there are parents of all kinds, middle-class professionals, cab drivers, postmen, people who've literally just arrived in this country. And when I'm standing at the gate, I think, I don't know where the, my Sudanese woman next to me has just come from or what she's just seen. I don't know about this Ukrainian or the Albanian or the... I don't know. But in a functioning state, I don't need to know they can have their privacy, they can have the respect of their sense of themselves, and we're at some kind of basic level of our needs being given to us equally without this private story. So that other version where I need to kind of know into people's hearts to think that they deserve (laughs) the rights that I might take for granted, that is, to me, a kind of slippery slope. But Mrs. Touche is living in a world in which there's only these personal stories. You know, you need the personal stories in order to enact the politics. so It matters to her a lot. But I think for Bogle, who's been a person invaded by the projections and desires of others, and at the mercy of them as an object on the plantation, he is very self-protective. He doesn't feel safe, I think, around someone who wants to know everything personal about him. It's hard for Mrs. Touche to understand because her route to I guess what you call self actualization now, is like being known, someone knowing her fully, yeah.
1: And if you did know the stories of everyone at the school gates...
0: It would be very it, hard to function. It would be overwhelming. Yeah. It would be very hard to function. So part of the exercise of civil society is to allow people their privacy and their pain. I remember, always remember that line of Nabokov, like, isn't pain the only thing that people really possess? I, I mean, I really believe that, yeah. It's not that you have contempt for their pain, but you don't have an absolute right to it.
1: And in Mrs. Touche's world, like you say, most of these stories are hidden. She feels she has to dig to hear them. Yes. Now, it's... you could say, I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but there's a cacophony, yes, partly you because them. you hear these stories all the time. And it is incredibly hard, particularly if you're sympathetic, maybe, to process that you range of them, stories. You hear
0: but I think they they I don't this is not a critique really, but it's just I notice it that you hear them and particularly in the American context, from experience Americans know that you you get your rights through these petitions of particular groups directly to government. So it doesn't surprise me. Like that is the way you work government in America, through rights. But there are of course other ways to do politics. There are ideas of collective duties and that aren't solely about individual rights. I mean, that argument in America just doesn't exist. There's no point in beginning to make it. But I think here we do have a memory of different kinds of politics that don't only work on I am pursuing my individual rights, but also I am making an analogy between my situation and your situation structurally, even if we are not identical. And so that part of the Victorian period was the bit that really excited me, actually, seeing that kind of politics done, seeing those Manchester workers saying, no, I don't think we will take cotton from the Confederates, making that analogy. Not that they knew they were not enslaved people in Manchester, but they, they also knew they were working in terrible labour conditions under the same system of capital. So those kind of movements of solidarity, which aren't really personal, which are kind of more practical, I find very moving.
1: Americans at the time loved Dickens. He was worshipped there, right? And he, like you say, he went there, and, and I think you. initially he loved it too. He thought, "This is my kind. These right. are my kind of people." You know, we're all on the same page. And then, as he travelled around, and particularly as he encountered slavery, right. he was repulsed by it. And my understanding of it always was he was repulsed by the hypocrisy because one of the great Dickensian themes is he's an anti-hypocrite, right. and the way that his characters are constructed is to be consistent that the name, the key characteristics of the person and the backstory, it fits together. So you see the person and the mask that you see reflects what right. lies behind it. And that's a version of anti-hypocrisy. But I've always thought being against hypocrisy is dangerous because just, it, allows <laughs> for, it allows for cruelty because you right. can be sincerely cruel. Right. And I think it does touch on what you were saying about the Governor Eyre... Jamaica controversy, right. which seems too tame a word for it, right. where Dickens ends up on the side of Carlisle. And people have often been baffled by this. How is the great sympathizer with the oppressed right. and the poor on the side of Carlisle defending this murderous right. put down of a class rebellion and a brutal racial politics? How did he end up on the wrong side of it? And I've always suspected it's partly a good example of the trap of being an anti-hypocrite, that he likes order, partly because order is clear and you can see through it. it. And he hated America because he thought this is a fake society because they're pretending to be something they're not. But if we can't pretend to be what we're not, we're screwed. I mean, that to me is the the criticism of Dickens.
0: You just took all the words out of my mouth. That is exactly what I think and exactly the change that is in my own mind from being very young when I started this and entirely preoccupied, as the English novel is, with hypocrisy personal, political, enraged by it all the time. (laughs) When I was listening to you recently talking about Orwell and remembering that essay, and what a brilliant distinction he makes between hypocrisy and fascism. The danger is, of course, in his argument that you think he's saying, well, two cheers or two and a half cheers like Forster does for this society. But I don't think that's what he means. I think that there is within hypocrisy, at least the idea of what might be aimed at. And that really matters it really matters to have a vision even if you (laughs) you're unable to uh, meet it it is still a vision and anybody who lived through fascism or has even the passing connection with it as I think at our age we both do knows the difference but that does not equal to me like political ambivalence or two and a half cheers for democracy it's just a kind of engine a knowledge that there is something far worse When when I was writing this book thinking about all the different frauds I was thinking about that arc, like, of course, the largest fraud in this book is the one between England and Jamaica, which is not just a matter of aesthetics or taste, it is wholly criminal. And then there are minor frauds, like, I think I'm a good novelist, and I'm not, like in the case of Ainsworth. Well, you know, we can live with (laughs) those kind of hypocrisies. It's not such a terrible thing. But there's something far more extreme at the other end.
1: And the antithesis of hypocrisy is sometimes, I think, thought to be sincerity. Right. And Dickens is a Sincere novelist, I think, in yeah. in various ways, yeah, but you can also be, I think it connects to the Tichborne case. You can be a sincere fraud as well. yeah, and there is something fascinating about the case and the way you write right. about it and the way people are drawn to it. It is so obviously fraudulent, right I mean, maybe we should describe the details of it, but it's so obviously fraudulent, and yet, if the person who is being the fraud, behaves like they believe it people connect to that they they connect to this sincere lie
0: yeah and I also don't know how I feel about it like the comparison when I went to America recently people kept on mentioning Trump and of course it was vaguely in my mind but I've started this book long before all of that but thinking about right-wing populism which is to people like us obviously horrifying but this is the case of left-wing populism this is a case of a monstrous and almost fictional idea passing through a public arena and galvanizing this mass support in terms of working people and so we, this, we should probably yeah, we say, say, explain, say what, so, what, the, what the thing is it's an aristocrat um called roger titchborn a catholic a landed man who goes missing as a young man his mother is convinced that he's still alive in fact he drowned and she offers money for his return and a man arrives from Australia, the working class English man, who looks not like, nothing like Roger, who is uneducated, who doesn't speak French, which Roger spoke, and claims to be her son. The mother believes him and then promptly dies, starting this court case. And his great witness was this black man who had been a servant of the family, Andrew Bogle. So it's an obvious lie, but what was so interesting is that the working class English attitude was these courts are unfair to us always they send us to Australia for stealing a sheep they murder us for stealing a bag of sugar it's about time one of our own one for once and the analogy in my mind is was OJ I mean OJ is the exact example I remember when I first came to America talking to black friends because I was English I could not comprehend what they were saying to me I said, I know this man is guilty. You know this man is guilty. What are you talking about? I felt like I was going mad. And then they would explain to me, this court system is guilty. So it really doesn't matter whether he's guilty or not. We're going to break this system. And that is exactly what happens in England. That system was corrupt. It was run by aristocrats. The lawyers themselves were not properly trained and there was no proper legal system it was kind of being still being pieced together so you could sum up a trial in two and a half months the final summary could be so even within the two trials there were two uh, a civil and then a criminal in the second trial for the first time I believe in England they put an all working class jury together so it did work this absurd case broke the system in some way I think that's hard for people on the left to to take on that something so deeply irrational, populist, and also full of dangerous elements. Like there were anti vaxxers in this Tichborne crowd. There were all kinds of wild forces joining together. Old Chartists, like it was a ragbag. And I find that very challenging because I like to think of myself as a rational person. But looking at the case, I can see that the irrational in politics sometimes makes a huge difference. And maybe the left sometimes needs to harness that.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I was in the States when the OJ verdict came through. And I can still remember it. I was in a diner, I think, and watching on TV. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it. They had a split screen of two crowds. When the, It was like a sports it event. Wild. It was like when they you yeah. know, have the fan zone for the football and you see everyone throwing their beer around. And it was just a white crowd and a black crowd. And then the verdict came through like a goal being scored. One crowd went crazy and one crowd let out this kind of groan of despair. Right. And it was, I'd not seen anything like that before. But I also, in reading your book, did think about Trump because Trump is Dickensian. So in some ways, I think he's Dickensian. So he has that thing where the name, the fake name, but the name and the mask, the thing he wears in public and the person behind the mask, it all lines up. Yeah. So if you want to connect to him, it's really easy. And it doesn't matter if the things that he's saying are fraudulent because he's not fraudulent. No, he's not. He's a... He's like a sincere liar. I've written about yeah. this in the past. He's a sincere liar and the sincere liar beats the honest hypocrite. Right. And the honest hypocrite is the person who dances around the fact that we're all playing two roles. That's so it. I thought Hillary was the honest hypocrite. She couldn't deal with the fact that she was leading a double life. And Trump just though yeah, technically he lost yeah. in some ways, but still you win because people in the end, I think, pick the sincere liar over the honest hypocrite. Yeah.
0: It's a tools of fiction as well. He's a poor rich man, as we know in New York, and OJ is a white black man. And Tichborne himself, the claimant, is also another poor rich man. I think those kind of utterly paradoxical figures are really attractive to people. It just releases this tension, not this mealy mouth nonsense you get from most of your politicians, just this kind of direct, open lie and that that is deeply terrifying, but it is also a psychological fact about people that it feels like a release.
1: And it's the rare politician, and Trump is one of them. It's his great gift: that you can be utterly paradoxical and project as though you were yep. just one thing. And that's the, it seems to me that's the secret. That's the magic source. Right. <laughs> The other thing about the Tichborne case is, and this is a, a Dickensian theme that, again, I think a lot of people read Dickens and they they are struck by this and maybe baffled by it, which is the, the part that Australia plays. So in the Tichborne case, it turns on the man who becomes the Tichborne claimant. He emerges from Wagga Wagga in right. Australia where he's a butcher, but he says, I'm a lord. And then Bogle backs him up in this. But Australia is this place where you go and then you come back as a completely different person. And that is a theme across Dickens' novels. Yes. And then the thing about Dickens that always, his personal life is chilling in lots of ways. One of the ways in which it's chilling is he sent two of his sons to Australia to to better themselves as though 19th century Australia was just existed as a place where you know, if you can't make it here, go there and the world is your oyster. Like people sometimes in the 20th century treated America. as you, you go there and then you can come back a new person. I imagine that 19th century Australia was absolutely terrifying in almost every possible way. But for Dickens, you know, these characters like Little Emily and Ham and, and McCaw, the McCawbers, you go to Australia to to wipe yourself clean. And it's it's yeah. a very weird other place to have set against england and the titchbourne case brings that out
0: i mean i feel it i feel it it really distresses me about dickens because he's such a perfect symbol of england's offshore logic which is so deep in our sensibility like our hell holes our penal colonies and our plantations are all out offshore and out of mind and allowing us to feel about ourselves that we are basically good and decent people And that's been going on a long time. But Australia, as a place of avoidance, I mean, it really is a penal colony. I always think of Kafka's story in this situation, that the penal colony is what exists on the outskirts of the state. It's the bit you don't have to think about. But as Kafka points out, it's what holds the state up. It's the fact that it exists, that Guantanamo exists, or that Jamaica exists, or that Australia exists, that England can have this conception of itself. They're in direct relation. So the fact that Dickens was so um, prone to this just makes him an absolute Victorian in that sense, that even the socialists, the liberals, the chartists, they all had this offshore logic to different degrees. But Dickens is quite strong because it has a fantasy element because Australia is certainly not the green and pleasant land. Like, that's a very hard life. And his son wrote letters back saying, please help me.
1: (laughs) I know, it's heartbreaking. It's
0: heartbreaking. But I think with Dickens, if you didn't, I mean, all of us who have children know this instinct to think that's the smart one, that's the pretty one. That that is a deadly instinct, and I think novelists have it particularly strongly and try to make their children conform. And when they didn't conform, he didn't. That was enough. He didn't want to see them.
1: I think it's in that Orwell essay that you were mentioning. Orwell's not saying hypocrisy is a good thing, and he distinguishes between the two kinds of hypocrisy. So there's the imperial hypocrisy, right. which is toxic, really, which is the English habit of thinking this way of life that we lead doesn't need to be explained by the thing that props it up. And then there is the hypocrisy, which is England's salvation in his mind, which is the double standards of domestic public life. But it's the the offshore hypocrisy, the out of sight, out of mind bit that he thinks will destroy the other thing. And you get that. That runs right the way through the 19th century. And the Australian... Dickens' Australia is a pretty good example of that. It just doesn't compute the way he constructs a place that exists in order for people here to go there and come back. And the Titchborne claimant is a good example of that. Yeah. It's absurd, it's, the idea yeah. that... And he, obviously, when he comes back, he doesn't come back as a lord. He comes back as the guy he left, the guy yeah. from Wapping, and everyone can see it. He doesn't have any of the characteristics that he's (laughs) claiming, but somehow having been in Australia is meant to have turned him into this other thing, whereas Australia was as you described it. I
0: think the dream dies very hard in England. Like The hardest part for me in this book is that when I was on an optimistic day, I would think, let's look at how slavery ended, the various stages, and I feel optimism about this mass movement which involved everything from petitions to boycotts to chartists to evangelicals and, aboli- you know, it was a, a very wide variety of people and the government itself. And you'd feel some, and of course, the slaves themselves revolting continually every few years. And then I'd have a much darker thought, which is, well, let's actually look at the the money and the capital version of this, which is the whole thing is going broke anyway. By 1820, 1830, the land is ruined. You're sending not just your fourth best son to Jamaica to run, but like your eighth best son because you know he's going to die. And the whole thing... Is a disaster anyway, and that actually this mass movement, which I respect and am impressed by, whether that is a fact or not, it only functions when, when the thing is crashing to the ground anyway. And then what you see is this kind of desperate English logic. Well, if our if our sons are no longer going to get rich offshore, then what? And remembering that the land's been given to Cromwellian soldiers three hundred years before, so it's constantly a land deal. So now we don't have that. Now there's no money. Now we're actually in debt. By the 1840s, you're in debt. Now we're probably going to have to start giving some form of independence. And then at the great end of this arc, in my book anyway, all this money is going to Stowe House. The final move is, what about our sons, our useless sons? Oh, yeah, a public school. That is the final logic of it. (laughs) When there's no money left and there's no land and you've sold everything out of Stowe House to Wallace House in London at a loss, by the way, they lost millions and millions. How can we rescue this class privilege? What is the very minimum? And the answer is a public school. And I think that is the history of England in miniature.
1: And this is on a day, I think it's today's headline or is it yesterday's headline that Keir Starmer's Labour Party is retreating from abolishing the charitable status of public schools. It's the same. I don't want to keep making this all about Orwell, but it's that Orwellian idea that the 1840s the 1940s the 2030s you can see the genetic link it's wild. in the nation
0: so that's what i really felt like when i'm talking to people about sometimes especially younger people the idea that we're at our most progressive moment ever i i can't i can't agree these things which were meant to be even the house of lords and public schools <laughs> it's 2023 <laughs> and we are still stuck so I don't know, the work of the Victorians, I'm so um, grateful for the radical part of it. Like when I think of the things I value in my life, parks, schools and hospitals and my house, the Victorians did all of that. Anything that is commons in my neighbourhood is certainly not done by Boris Johnson. It was done by the Victorians. So it is crazy to be living in the sad, crumbling remnants of a 200-year-old radical movement for a commons. I mean, that is berserk.
1: The other thing about the Jamaica story is that when you see, say, the movement to abolish slavery, you see the arc of it in headline political terms, and it has its great culmination with an act of parliament. But a lot of things don't change, and Jamaica is a good example of that. So slavery is abolished, but indentured servitude continues, and so you need another revolt. And then by the time you get to the Dickens-Carlisle moment, people like Dickens are able to say to themselves that somehow these people are ungrateful because we gave them their great victory. And the danger, one of the dangers, I think, in politics is to mistake the symbolic victory for the act itself. And Jamaica is a pretty terrifying example of that. The horror of Jamaica in the 1850s and the 1860s doesn't make you feel like what happened in the 1830s was the great victory.
0: Yeah, and it also tells you something about the ruthlessness of capital. Like, I think if you're stuck only in a a kind of essentialist race argument about slavery, you forget how ruthless this is. Like, when they couldn't get any more new African bodies, they were perfectly willing to send the Irish. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, you need bodies to work on these plantations. So, I think if your political landscape is essentialist and and preoccupied with race. Beyond all else, you miss the dynamics of this because it really is about money, and the race part of it is a secondary justification for a pure system of capital that's been going on a long time. So, I think a lot of the abolitionists too thought, Oh, well, you know, it's resolved, we have freed the blacks, but the system, and we've won the moral, yeah, we've won the moral victory, but bodies were still suffering, human bodies both black and white by this point are suffering and dying in this incredible system for a country thousands of miles away so it didn't end
1: i want to ask you one more thing or maybe set of things which is about to come back to dickens so he's he's a universal novelist and i think he's read all over the world and i think people read dickens writing about england and they relate to it and he's writing in the 1840s 50s 60s but relative to, say, Russian literature in that period, he is both universal and he's very provincial, or at least relatively narrow. Yeah, I, I don't know how to think about Dickens as the great universal novelist of the 19th century compared to the Russians. It's a big I, question. I just
0: recently was reading Fathers and Sons, and I, it really blew my mind that that book is 1861, and thinking about British prose at the same moment... Um, it's it's troubling <laughs> it's a troubling fact and not fact. just Ainsworth all, yeah, of, it, all it's of it all of it like I just read The Warden by Trollope which yeah. is delightful yeah, yeah. but it's basically <laughs> to the last page you think oh he's about to make a radical argument about land reform but then the bottom line is his argument in this book is you should have left everything the way it was it was actually much nicer and that is such a deep <laughs> English instinct I recognise it but I, don't, I still don't want to take away from Dickens. I still think here is a man who affected real change and also who is incredibly enjoyable. The enjoyment and beauty of those novels and the human just interest and vitality of them is not to be ignored. My only problem is if you're looking to Dickens to solve your political problems or to give you an accurate picture of, you know, the variety of political experience in England at a the time, then you're looking in the wrong place, I think. Whereas if you're reading Turgenev, you really are getting a picture of this competition between the liberals, the radicals, the conservatives, the aristocrats, the government itself. You you really are getting a much broader, more realistic, less sentimental portrait. So these are very different writers. But, you know, if I want to cozy up on an October night, yes, it will be with Dickens over (laughs) Turgenev, I'm sure. That English instinct is very deep in me. But as a novelist myself... His example is always a somewhat troubling one, yeah, for sure.
1: But to go back to something you said earlier, isn't it also possible with Dickens you do get the motivation to act? So it's a while since I've read *Fathers and Sons*. You read it more recently, but my memory of it is that it's a completely compelling book. But at the end of it, you feel wrung out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Uh, and it's a novel of ideas, and the ideas are overwhelming. You can't, you. I don't know what you're meant to do at the end of reading that book. Whereas you, you could finish a Dickens novel and think, shit, we need to do something Yeah, about that's
0: this. exactly it. And the same when you finish Dostoevsky, you want to yeah. do something, probably the wrong thing, but you want to do something. Oh <laughs> well,
1: Yeah, that's and, dangerous yeah. for young men <laughs> yeah. in a very different way. And
0: Tolstoy <laughs> is the same. These are, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Dickens to a degree, they are, they think in black and white, they are loud, they are very clear. Turgenev was accused always of being, you know, ambivalent of not, you know, having a proper, all the things I'm probably accused of, so I, I sympathise, but... There's the question of what makes a good, a great novel, and what makes you go up to the barricades. Maybe there are novels that do both at the same time. Maybe we have these wonderful, like Animal Farm, incredible examples. But to me, Dickens, the simplicity of him sometimes can be incredibly powerful. And I, when I think about how blind England was to its suffering children, like how blind for how long? And how Dickens with Little Dorrit and all the rest of the, and Oliver, how he transformed that consciousness, I, that is in no way a small matter.
1: I guess we're probably living in an age where there is an appetite for the novel that changes things, but it seems to me it's only one of the things that a novel might do. Right. And the Dickensian novel, because it has these characters in it who are consistent, consistent persons, and to be a person is just to be a constructed thing it invites that kind of response. But the other thing that a novel can do, I think that your novel does, which is to show just how many layers there are to being a person. And it does, why does why does the novel then have to inspire you to act? No. There's, there's a profound truth in that. I and mean, I think it's part of understanding what it is to be alive, to know that people have masks behind the masks. And the more that you see, it is harder. But why does a novel have to do the other thing?
0: I hear you, but I think the bit you don't want to fall into is the art for art's sake argument. And like for the Russians, that was a great danger and something that's constantly Turgenev's being accused of because he's hanging out with Paris, with Flaubert and all the rest of it. I think a a good model is someone like Toni Morrison, to me, who never gives up the idea of the aesthetic in fiction and the existential in fiction. I mean, partly it's because she was a committed Catholic, which I think is not something that many of her readers recognise or want to think about, but she is both you know, thinking very seriously about race in America, but also very, very concerned with, for lack of a better word, human souls. I mean, they really mattered to her. And I've found teaching over the years that sometimes people's vision of Tony and the reality are quite different, right? Like the little tags that you get on the internet suggest one writer, and when they open the bluest eye, they're like, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) This is like, first of all, an experimental novel. Second of all, largely features a paedophile. You know, there are lots of things in... Morrison which are surprising but to me she does provoke action but it's not; it might not be direct but I know for myself she transformed the way I thought about my life my body, my people and what that might mean and fiction itself so it's a different kind of change but it's a kind I aspire to I think
1: The Fraud by Zadie Smith is out now I have to say, I did love it. And you can get it wherever you get good books. As always, we will post links on Twitter to reading and writing connected to this week's episode. Do please follow us at PPF Ideas. And that's also where you'll hear about forthcoming episodes of the podcast. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Mary Beard, the historian of the ancient world. And we're going to be discussing what it means to rule an empire. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.